1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He said, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And he also said, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. And he said, do good to those who hate you. Uh, Some pretty challenging words there. And I reckon Peter's probably remembering the teaching of Jesus when he wrote this part of his letter. But as I read this for the start, I I couldn't really work out, is Peter talking about relationships in the church or is he talking about when we deal with people who hate us because we're Christians and about people who hate the church? Because when he starts out in verse 8, he's talking about having a unity of mind and brotherly love. and So he's got to be talking about relationships in the church. But then by the time we get to verse 12, he's talking about The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, which then leads into verse 13 and onwards, which we'll get to after Christmas time, where he's talking about Christian persecution and about Christians who are suffering because of Christ. And so I realised he's actually talking about both. As brothers and sisters in Christ, the Holy Spirit in us helps us to get our act into gear as we begin to love one another and as we so we and as we don't retaliate against one another in the church because we do sometimes rub each other the wrong way but we 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 get into this place where we don't retaliate against one another and we love one another and we begin to love one another with the same love that God has given to us right so God loves me with his love, and then I love you with that same love that God has given to me. And you love me with that same love that God has given to you. And so in the Christian church, we actually begin to experience the love of God more and more as we share it with each other. This isn't just a trying harder. It's not just a, I will try and love this person. It's more than that. It's God loving us and then us passing that love on it's so much greater now the thing is the love of God that we experience in the company of each other it isn't something that we can keep to ourselves but the love of God increases and increases and it's just got to overflow like Andrew's story we just had just now and so the next thing is for us to begin to love like God loves and to love so graciously that we even give our love to people who don't deserve it. Ooh, that's hard. That's hard. 
to love people who don't deserve it, and to even love people who hate us. And that's why it's important that this is God's love that we're talking about, because this is what God has done for us. Even while we still hated God, didn't want to have anything to do with God, God loved us so much that he gave us his only son, and he's given us this love. And this is a sort of love that, that we have to give now to others. But this love, this perfect love, begins in the church. And so if you're not part of a church, or if you're not part of a church that's filled with love, then you're not going to have a lot of chance of being able to, to be loving the world and to be loving people who hate you in the way that God loves you. Now... From my experience, Christians aren't always very good at this. Uh, in fact, in, in some churches and between some Christians, there's, there's broken relationships, there's bitterness, there's animosity, there can be self-serving pride, can be insults, abuse, there can even be seething hatred. And I've seen it in churches. And then these people, they, they, they've got all of this going on. They've got all of these broken relationships and all of this non-love happening. And then they go, right, now we're going to do the mission of God and love the world. And they, they wonder why their mission misfires. The thing is, love has to begin in the church. Jesus said, and I seem to be quoting this a fair bit lately, by, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love between Christians, love within the church is the primary evidence that we are disciples of Jesus. And yet some people are really quick to give up on their brothers and sisters in Christ. And... Don't bear with one another and don't love them at all. But this is where love begins, in the church. Now, Peter commands five things that all of us in the church, all Christians, should have. And there's a bit of a pattern to the way that he lists these. So at the, at the centre of the, the list is brotherly love. Bookending this list, so the very first and the very last, is what we think. It's what we do with our minds. And the second and fourth on the list, as we each side of the brotherly love, is how we feel. It's to do with our emotions. Right? So he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So let's begin with the unity of mind. Unity of mind in a church is critical. And yet there's a lot of people who will argue against that. You see, our culture has become so individualistic. Our society likes to think that even truth is subjective, right? So what's true for me might not be true for you. And some churches function on this premise that it doesn't matter what you believe theologically, it doesn't matter what you believe about God, and it doesn't matter what I believe about God, and if they're different, we can come together with a common purpose, or a common passion, or a common mission, and this can be the basis of our unity, 
right? So you can believe what you want to believe about God. I'll believe what I want to believe about God. And as long as we have this common passion or this common mission, so it might be a mission or passion to, to house the homeless or, or to run an orphanage, or it might be coming together to feed the hungry or, or whatever this passion it is that you have, I believe that as long as we have this common passion, that's all that matters, and that'll be the basis of being unity. You know what? That is a lie of a devil. You see, it's not on what we do that we come together. It's about what Jesus has done that brings us together and gives us unity. And so unity of mind tops the list. It's about having a like understanding. We are unified in our minds. We have this common faith. It's what we believe about God is the same. You see, Jesus is the primary basis of our unity. And if we come together on something other than faith in Christ, well, that's not the church. It might be Rotary, it might be Lions Club, it might be Men's Shed, it might be some of those other organisations that like to do good projects and do things for people. But if we don't come together on the common belief and common faith of what we believe about God, then we're not the church. Because this is the only thing that binds us together. Something that always perplexes me is when someone decides to join a particular church and, and they know that the teaching of that church is wrong, but there's other things about it. There's the, they like the excitement or they might like the vision or they might like the, the projects that it does or, or that might be where all their friends are and that's where they choose to go and they convince themselves it doesn't really matter if, if they believe different stuff to what I believe. I can just... I can just work against, I can work with that. I can just, when they tell me the stuff that I know is wrong, I'll just discard that. And some people use the phrase, keep the meat, spit out the bones. It's starting off with no unity of mind. It's choosing to tie ourselves with no unity of mind. And this is the top of the list. Secondly, he moves from the mind to the gut. Uh, us English speakers, when we talk about the emotions and feelings, we talk about the heart, don't we? Well, the Greeks talk about the gut. And I think that's probably even a better, better description. You know how when you're really churning about something, it's not your heart that, that has a heart attack, you're churning in the guts, right? The Greeks know their bodies well. And so this is about how we feel. Have sympathy. Now, sympathy is where we enter into and experience the feelings of the other person. You know, when I was training for the ministry, we were told that, um, that, that the ministry is a profession and that when you're a minister, you've got to put in boundaries and you can't let yourself get too close to people and get, get involved with them and you can't take on the burdens that, that you that your people have got, you know, otherwise that'll just get too much for you. And, and, and we were even told you can't even have any close friends in your church because all that would be against the ministerial code of ethics and stuff. And I realised very quickly, I'm, if that's 
professional. I'm not very good at being a professional. And neither was Peter. And that's something I really liked about Bush Disciples. You guys don't expect me to be a professional. As Peter's already told us, we are all ministers. We are all of the royal priesthood. All Christians are the ministers, are the priests. And there's nothing professional about it. And to engage in the feelings of each other is essential for us. It's part of this expression of the love that God has given for us to share with one another. How can we be a people who love and care for each other if we don't engage with each other's feelings? It was the Apostle Paul who described this sort of sympathy in Romans chapter 12 when he said, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And yet there's a whole lot of people out there in church world um, who don't keep the second part of that command because they see it as their duty to cheer you up. You see, for some reason, sometimes we get it into our heads that, oh, no Christian should ever be sad. And if you're feeling sad, well, that's not a good look. We don't want sad people at church. That'll turn people off. Oh, gee, we don't want any of that. And so what we have to do is, is in faith, act as if you're happy, and then you'll be happy. You know what that is? That's being false. I don't know about you, but I don't think God wants us to be false. And in the church, we're never told to not be sad. We are told to have joy, but you can have joy and be really sad at the same time. Have joy in the Lord and yet have sad for the terrible things that have happened. And, and in the church, we are to feel sympathy for one another where we enter into and experience the feelings of the other person. What do you do when there's someone in the church who's filled with grief? They might have just heard that, that a loved one has died. Or they might have just been diagnosed with cancer or had a loved one diagnosed with cancer. Or, or maybe their business has just gone belly up and they've lost everything. They've lost their business, they've lost their home, they've lost their livelihood, they've, they've, they're, all their dreams have been crushed. Or maybe they've just had a miscarriage They've, all of their hopes and dreams have been set on having this child and they might have been trying for years to get pregnant. And then finally, the joy of the pregnancy, but then the child is lost. What do you do when there's somebody in the church who is filled with grief? I'll tell you what a lot of us do. Nothing. Avoidance is the word that, that I would probably have to use. And it's not because we don't care. It's because we're scared. It's because we're afraid that if I go and visit this person, what, what am I going to say to them? What if I say the wrong thing? What if I make it worse for them? What, what do I say if I go to visit somebody in, in such a state I want you to know something that I learned a long time ago is when somebody is grieving, they're not usually looking for a well-prepared theological dissertation. 
What they're really after and what they really appreciate is for somebody to come up and give them a hug and to cry with them. What they need is somebody to sit with them, maybe for hours, and not say a word, but just be with them as they weep and weep with them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Let's not practice falsehood by denying them the pain. And let's have genuine sympathy and experience the pain with them. And they'll, they'll appreciate that more than what, what we'll ever know. Even if you don't say a word for hours, just sit with them. That's sympathy. Thirdly, we come to the centerpiece, brotherly love. Have brotherly love. Genuinely care for each other. We, we have a common heavenly father, right? So in the church, we can be very different to each other. People from all walks of life, people who you might not normally associate with out in the world, you'd, you'd ne they'd never become part of my group of friends, but we're all brought together in the church and we all have something in common. That's our heavenly father. We have the same heavenly father and it's on this basis that we have the love for each other. And yet, I've seen some people who claim to be disciples of Jesus and they don't love other disciples of Jesus. Now, let me tell you really bluntly, that's an impossibility. To claim that, that you're a Christian and not love other Christians. The Apostle John was really blunt when he said it. He basically said, if, if you reckon you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. You don't love God at all. That's pretty blunt, isn't it? And yet, sometimes churches can be so broken and there can be so much hatred. Do we not know what God says about this? You know, in the church, this is bread and butter stuff. This is basic Christian discipleship 101. Have brotherly love. And yet so many times churches just fall down in this. There's no love. Fourthly, have a tender heart. Don't be afraid that you're going to be seen as a softie. Having a tender heart isn't about weakness. This is godliness. And God is strong. And fifthly, have a humble mind. How we feel and how we think can be two different things. You realise that? Well, how you feel about something, but then your mind overrides it and goes, no, I can't, I can't do that. Right? And a lot of time this happens with a tender heart. So the tender heart is telling you to care for somebody in a certain way or give them another chance or whatever, and your mind goes, no, nah, that's too soft. I'll burr up a bit. But to express brotherly love in all of its fullness takes a humble mind. But what is that? What, what is a humble mind? Well, let me tell you what it's not. Humility isn't about having a poor self-image and wishing that I could be better. Oh, I'm not good enough. 
I wish I could be like that other person. They're so much better in control. They're so much stronger. There's so much, right? Insert your inadequacy there. That's not humility. In fact, it's pretty much the opposite of humility. I'm talking about having feelings of self-loathing or an adequacy that says, I'm not good enough. And so we feel that we're not good enough, but we have a desire to be so much better, right? So I know that I'm not the top of the pack. I know I'm pretty, I'm not a special person, but I'd really like to be, right? So that's not humility. Having a humble mind is simply having a willingness to take the lower place and to put others first. So whether you're at the top of the pack and, and everyone looks up to you, or whether you're not, doesn't matter. Humility is being willing to take the lower place and let others take the place up above you. And so Peter says, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Hmm. Doesn't sound too hard, or is it? Why do we find it so hard? Do you know what he's really describing? He's really describing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, right? He's describing the character of God. And if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, this is the fruit we display and the sort of love that we'll have for each other. You know, there's a lot of preachers who'll tell you, oh, the proof that we're a spirit-filled church is, is we're seeing the gifts of the Holy Spirit in action here and we're seeing signs and wonders. There's the proof of the Holy Spirit. Rubbish. In fact, the Bible actually says the opposite. You see, the Bible tells us these things can be faked and these things can be mimicked by the devil. The evidence that the Holy Spirit is in a church is the fruit of the Spirit. Which is why Jesus said, by their fruits you'll know them. Not by the things they do, by the fruit. And so you show me a church that's filled with brotherly love. You show me a church that has a unity of mind and sympathy and tender hearts and humble minds. And I'll show you a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit. You know what? I get really encouraged by our little church here. Because here in our little church, I see this. I see a unity of mind. I see sympathy. I see brotherly love. I see tender hearts and humble minds. No, we're not all perfect. But I see God growing these things in us. And so I praise God. And when this is where we're at, when we are loving each other with the love that God has given to us, that love's just got to overflow. This isn't something that we can just keep for ourselves. And so the next step is to love so graciously 
that we even love those who hate us, right? Gracious love is about loving people who don't deserve our love. You know, so often we sort of think, oh, I'll, I'll, begin, I'll respect so-and-so when he respects me. Oh, I'll show him a few good deeds when, when he's a bit nicer to me. That's not grace. Grace is showing love to people who don't deserve it. And believe it or not, this is something we even have to practice in the church. I am evidence that not everyone in the church is easy to love. And you're probably the other one who's not so easy to love. We all need to show grace to one another and love one another, even when we don't deserve it. See, the Christian church is like a family. And I think we all know what families can be like. At times, families will hurt each other. At times, families will lash out and they'll say horrible things and they'll say hurtful things. And we know that in our family, if it ever becomes a place for payback, then that's going to become a dysfunctional family really quick. And it's the same in the church. This is what Peter says. He says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Have you ever noticed that when we get into a system of payback, it just escalates? Right, so, so little, little Johnny bumps into Freddie. So Freddie pushes Johnny. And Johnny turns and pushes Freddie so hard he pushes him over. Freddie picks himself up the ground and punches Johnny. And then it's on for young and old. Right, it just escalates, doesn't it? How does it go with you, Billy and Jack? Does it escalate? You try and stop it. Yeah, oh, righto. <laughs> If somebody does the wrong thing to you, don't pay them back by doing bad in return. If somebody hurts you with their words, don't pay them back by hurling hurtful words back. Um, it says don't repay reviling for reviling. Um, reviling is insults or abuse. Right? Now, we Australians... We're pretty good at insulting people, aren't we? It's sort of, it's sort of like a, a national sport, really. In fact, we sort of... I'm not really friends with somebody unless I can insult them, and they're not really good friends with me unless they can insult me, right? What is this logic? That's, is that the way we work? It is pretty much. It is pretty much. Um, and there's been times that I've thought that I've had been having really good-natured fun with somebody by trading insults with them, and I found out later that that person was deeply hurt by the words that I'd said. Let's get away from insults, and let's get away from abusing one another. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, at this point, I, I just need to digress a little bit to, to explain something, 
Uh, th there's a very popular teaching around at the moment, and I'm pretty sure you would have come across it. Uh, it's about the power of words and the power of blessings and curses. And, and this teaching has some elements of truth to it, but then it gets made into a whole formula that elevates us to the position of God. Right? So let me give you an example. I was having a conversation with somebody once about, about a certain person and the troubles that they were having in their business and whatnot. And, and I said, you know, if they keep heading in the direction they are without changing anything, uh, they're going to go broke. And straight away, this person I was talking with said, I negate those words in the name of Jesus. Yeah. What? What's going on there? You see, this was somebody who'd taken on the popular teaching of the power of words and the power of blessings and curses. And, and in their eyes, because I had said something that was negative towards this person, that was like they're headed towards bankruptcy, then I had spoken a curse over them. And because I'd said it, it was going to happen because my words are so powerful. Now, the problem with this is it puts us in the position of God. It's like God speaks and these things happen, right? And we put ourselves into the position of God. And so they say, you can only ever say good things about people because that will bless them. And you say something good about a person and it'll come into being and that's their blessing. And never say anything bad about a person because that's speaking a curse over them and, and that's going to happen. Rubbish, rubbish. Now, using that logic, probably half the Proverbs would have to be counted as speaking of curses, right? So, as an example, Proverbs 20, verse 4 says, The sluggard does not plough in autumn. He'll seek a harvest and have nothing, right? Ooh, that's speaking a curse, saying that he's not going to have any harvest. No, they're not curses. They're truth and they're wisdom. Now, I want you to know... God always, always wants us to speak the truth. Let's never speak falsely. See, some people have the habit of, I'm going to say that something has already happened because by believing it, God's going to make it happen. Well, you could think that's wishful thinking, but it's actually a lie. God does not want us to speak falsely. And they, they see it as some kind of magic formula to bring in the be, into being the things that they have said. Now, if you believe that the words you speak have the same power as the words that God speaks, somebody's been messing with your head, and it's not biblical. I don't have power to create or to destroy with my spoken words. That's entirely at the discretion of God. But... The reason this teaching has become so widely accepted is because there are some important elements of truth to it. Words are powerful. They can be very hurtful and they can be very harmful. And a few harsh words, a few hurtful words can cause great trouble. James spoke of words as being like a small bit that you put in a horse's mouth and you can control a powerful horse. Or being like a small rudder 
that can turn an, enorm an enormous ship or being like a small fire that can set a whole forest ablaze. That's what words can be like. And now Peter is saying, be careful with how you use your words. Don't pay back insults with more insults. Don't pay back abuse with more abuse. What he's saying is be a people of grace and give good in return for evil. As Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we have been called to be a people who bless others. And when I use that word bless, I'm not just meaning a matter of words. We've been blessed by God, not just with words, but with actions and by reality. And so let us be a blessing to others. Now, at this point, Peter's reminded of Psalm 34. He says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, to let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, the thing is, a worldly sort of person will look at those promises in that psalm and claim those promises for today. A good life, a long life, marvellous days, health, wealth, prosperity. But Peter and the people that he's writing to know very well that our reward of life and good days aren't about prosperity here on earth. It's about our eternal inheritance. It's so much better than having a short-lived worldly prosperity. It's about eternal life and good days with God. But what jumps out at me here is that as disciples of Jesus, we have a choice to make. And this is a choice for us to make every day. It's to choose to live by the ways of the Spirit or to choose to the ways of flesh. The, the flesh wants us to retaliate, right? When somebody does something bad to you, what's, what do you straight away want to do? Well, if anything like me, you want to retaliate. That's what the flesh does. But we are to keep our tongue from evil. We are to keep our lips from speaking deceit. By the way, deceit is more than just telling a lie. Um, you know how sometimes we might say something which, oh, we convince ourselves in our mind, it's not technically a lie. I didn't really lie. It's just um, we've misled them a little bit. Well, that's deceit. That's deceit. We've got the choice to turn from evil and, and to do good and to not only seek peace but to pursue peace, right? This is a really active thing. You sort of think all these relationships, nice relationships and loving relationships just happen. There's seeking and pursuing involved here. And the choice we make is important because God sees. God sees it when we do right 
and he sees it when we do wrong. And he is quick to hear the prayers of the righteous, but his face are against those who do wrongdoing. Isn't it interesting where Peter's brought us to? To be a church of one mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, to love graciously, to not retaliate, to do good and not do evil. You know, if we seriously take the teachings of Jesus, this has got to be basic Christian discipleship 101. But it's also a lesson on prayer. He says that the Lord is quick to hear the prayers. The Lord's ears are open to a people who love like this. So let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the love that you've given to us. You've been so gracious to us. You have loved us even though we didn't deserve it. And Lord, we want to thank you for our Christian family. Thank you for the brotherly love that we have. And Lord, I'm aware that there's probably people listening to this today who are grieved, who are hurting, who are frustrated because their experience of the church has not been a place of brotherly love. Lord, I pray for them and I pray for their church. As Peter presented these, these points as a command, Lord, I ask that you would place in the hearts of those who hear, hear this a, a resolve to obey you, to have one mind, to have sympathy, brotherly love, a, a tender heart and a humble mind, to love graciously and to not retaliate with insults and abuse, to do good and not evil. And Lord, I realise there's a place for repentance here. And Lord, if any of us now have to repent of, of times when we have not loved as we should, if we need to repent of insults and abuse, if we need to repent of our hard heart and our proud mind, Lord, I ask that you would convict us now. And we do repent, Lord. Lord, I pray for whole churches that are broken, that you would bring this conviction into, into this church. And Lord, I pray for healing and reconciliation in your church. Lord, may we share your love with each other, that the love would begin in the church and then spread to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.